This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a Business Radio special presentation. After the blockchain bubble, a look at how the technology works, how it can revolutionize industries, and what the blockchain and cryptocurrency world will look like going forward. Here's your host, Kevin Werbach. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Blockchain Bubble, our two-hour special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. As you heard, I'm Kevin Werbach. I'm a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton, formerly the co-host of the digital show on Business Radio, and more recently author of the new book, The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. And I'm excited to spend the next two hours with you talking about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technology. Where are we and where are we going? As you probably know, if you followed this world at all, cryptocurrency prices have crashed over the last year. And many blockchain applications haven't fully taken off or matured. So was this all just a bubble? Was it all just a fad? What comes next? I'm thrilled that joining me are not two, not four, not six, but seven experts in blockchain and cryptocurrencies from a variety of perspectives, entrepreneurs, investors, authors, legal scholars, analysts, uh, all talking about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, people who've been in this space a long time uh, and are going to help us understand uh, where things are going and what it means for you. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest, who's Michael Casey. Michael is an author and journalist, uh, previously with The Wall Street Journal, also advisor to blockchain companies, chairman of the advisory board for Coindesk, advisor to the MIT Media Labs Digital Currency Initiative, among other things, including being the author of five books, uh, including two with Paul Vigna, called The Truth Machine and the Age of Cryptocurrency, specifically about this area. Someone who uh, I've uh, uh, seen for a long time as uh, one of the best and sharpest observers in the space. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Michael, welcome. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Congratulations on your book as well. Thank you so much. Uh, So as I said, you've been watching uh, blockchain and crypto for a while. And uh, one thing that that anyone in this space knows is that there have been a series of crashes, at least in in Bitcoin, going back uh, to when it launched in 2009. And uh, this this whole technology has been declared dead many times in, in that 10-year period since, uh, since Bitcoin launched. So is what we're experiencing now this year any different from your perspective? Well, I think it was uh, – I think the, the, the bubble that we were obviously most definitely in last year, and I think it was almost obvious – uh, despite Greenspan's, uh, Alan Greenspan's always view that you can never tell a bubble until it's burst. It was pretty obvious to many of us that we were in one last year. Um, was um, you know it was markedly different in the sense that it did, it reached out beyond the kind of the fringe world that, that that ultimately we'd really seen interest in crypto into the mainstream. And we all heard the stories about the taxi driver or your mother asking for tips and so forth. And so I think that significantly changed the. Uh, the kind of landscape in which crypto now existed. So, you know, the, the sell-off has, has, is important in that regard because, you know, the people who lost their shirts were actually, you know, serious, uh, you know, or just regular Joes. And as a result, I think, you know, it, it, wasn't, it hasn't been particularly helpful, certainly not to the PR of the space. <laughs> um, but it, um, it, it, and as a result, you know, we may see a longer time for recovery here. 
but you know, um, there are aspects to this that are just you know, integral to the way that this transformative technology is being introduced. It's, it's almost inherent that something as potentially you know, significant in terms of uh, the paradigm shift is going to attract these kind of waves of bubbles. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done to figure out where it's going to go, and and the ideas that are spinning out of it are so kind of uh, uh, ad hoc and 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 you know dramatic that you get these these influences. So I certainly wouldn't be surprised that we get back and start to see numbers uh, approaching something where we were in the future. I just don't think it's healthy necessarily to assume that past is prologue here. Absolutely. Well, it, you made an interesting point about the level of mainstream interest, uh, but you know, there's mainstream and there's mainstream. There is uh, people speculating, and you talked about you know, the taxi drivers day trading uh, cryptocurrencies, but then there's real people using real mass market type services, and you know, everyone always draws analogies to the to the dot com bubble, and I have as well. And having lived through it, there, there's some really interesting parallels. But back then, you had taxi drivers day trading internet startups, but you also had people buying books on Amazon and people searching for things on Yahoo. Certainly, at a very small scale by current standards, but you had some real applications where there were some real metrics. It doesn't seem like we've yet gotten to that point with blockchain and cryptocurrency. So, can we be confident that we will? Um, I'm fairly confident that we will. I mean, it is fair to say as well that in you know the permissioned blockchain space, so ones that aren't necessarily you know, applications of blockchain technology that are not necessarily uh, attached to the crypto assets that were being traded last year and still are, uh, that we are seeing implementations. I mean, we're certainly seeing uh, you know the, the use of it in supply chain applications. We've probably all heard about you know the role that, that Walmart is. Is playing and using it for provenance of goods. Uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of work going into areas like trade finance and the like. And these are all done on permissioned blockchains that don't you know require a cryptocurrency and therefore you know don't have the same level of sort of radical decentralization that we'll have there. But I think those implementations. I'm not you know there are a lot of folks in the crypto space will poo-poo these as being you know something that it's that's a, a lesser version of the of the, of the goal. The principles that they hold, but I actually think that 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 those real-world implementations that are going on are going to be really powerful ways to test out the functioning of smart contracts, the functioning of uh, you know um, append-only uh, record-keeping systems, and and the like. Uh, at the same time, that we have um, you know significant uh, improvement, it seems in in scaling uh, of these permissionless systems. Uh, such that you know there, there's a kind of a preparation, if you like, for this more radical decentralized vision to to actually be implementable. The reality is that permissionless systems, the bitcoins, the ethereums of this world, you know, just aren't ready for the kind of scale that uh, we we would want to see uh, for transactions on on a global scale. So we need to get that technology right, and I think that having it developed in a private permission setting is actually not such a, a bad way to go about this. So the parallels actually are similar. It's just that, um, you know, it depends on what category you're talking about as to where the actual activity is going on. Right. I'm, I'm with you on that. I, th I think there's some degree of um, religiosity on both sides of the divide where you have people coming out of the, the Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency world, the, the permissionless side, just saying, well, anything else 
that you know requires some measure of identity to get on the network is just a database and therefore it's nothing new and you have people some of the people in the enterprise world not all but but some saying well look this is the only thing that's real this this other stuff is just a science project and and i, I think it's it, it you it is a fair point that the really radical innovations of doing this in a fully decentralized way we've got an existence proof with bitcoin but you know in terms of scaling them up and using them for transactions in the real world that's going to take time mm-hmm. well so yeah. let me let me ask you then a, a sort of a related question to that is you've been again doing this for a long time talking to people about what is the fundamental innovation here my finding is that you know there still are so many people in the business world and the policy world who are smart people who who still come to me and say i, I just don't get this it's not it's not that i'm skeptical I just don't understand really what it is and how it works. What's the best way that you've come up with to talk to a, a general audience about yeah. you know, what's the innovation here? What really makes it interesting and important? It's one of my favorite questions because I um, I go to record keeping. I go to accounting. Uh, I actually, my very first job out of out of uh, um, college was as as an accountant, which sort of stuns people because it's not the sort of thing that I would normally they would expect to be associated with me. <laughs> you I actually admit that, job. yes. <laughs> I actually admit it. I hated the job, and I quit, and I traveled, and I went and did all sorts of strange things with my life, and I thought I became a journalist. I find it quite ironic that all the way back now, I am in uh, working in a field where at the center of it all really is the function of accounting, right? The ledger keeping thing, and the thing that I've started to realize is the reason why a decentralized record-keeping system, a decentralized ledger, is so radically important is because it is a big paradigm shift in this function that is core to how civilization works. If you go back to the very beginnings of writing, the first Sumerian tablets and these things that emerged in you know, Babylon and Mesopotamia, that the um, that those first tablets were legends. Uh, the very first name ever recorded in history was that of an accountant. It's no coincidence because we need these systems of record keeping upon which to build uh, society. I mean, without records, without ledgers, we don't have the capacity to exchange, uh, enter into economic exchange upon which we build everything else, right? Right. You need this basis, this understanding of where everybody sits, of what what the common understanding of the value proposition, of the, of the value structure is, where, where, who's up, who's down, what our credits and debit structure is. Um, and we've just for 7,000 years, as that process has gone on, we've relied on central entities to do that, which means that there is a whole function of trust. Um, and to move from that to a decentralized structure, if we just... Just you know, work with that assumption that, that, that accounting is fundamental to everything. Then to move to a decentralized structure is radical because it removes this uh, requirement to, to, to reconcile uh, across all of these multiple siloed centralized systems. If at any given time a community has a common understanding of what the consensus view of the truth is around this common uh, you know, number set, then, then, then they should, you remove a lot of this, uh, you know, thing that we describe as the cost of trust that exists at every single hop between each of these reconcil- reconciling uh, actions. And when people say, you know, a blockchain is expensive, which is which truly is, is the case when you think about the added computational requirements of having every single computer run the same record, what they 
don't do a very good job of, of doing is weighing that cost against this cost of trust. Right. And the cost of trust is, is deep. Like it's every it's it's in you know as I say the reconciliations every every single uh, skyscraper of the world is filled with cubicles of accountants whose main job is to reconcile their company's accounts against somebody else's. The weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual audits and records. The, the bookkeeping process is an extremely uh, cumbersome and costly exercise precisely because we don't trust each other. Uh, you know, and it's just, it means trust just generally. It doesn't yeah. mean that there's sort of evil. It's just simply that we are organized around different trust bylaws. So the idea that we could actually have a common record is a profound idea. And I just don't think people quite recognize that, that that's as significant as it is because it's just something they just assume. We just assume we've avoided that accounting in this way. You can't recognize it as something to be disrupted unless you see it as you know, a cost. And, and I don't think it's fully understood in those terms properly. This is Kevin Werbeck, and you're listening to After the Blockchain Bubble, our two-hour special. I'm speaking now with Michael Casey, author and journalist uh, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. Um, and, uh, Michael, you, I think you did a good job of, of explaining in um, uh, terms of trust why this phenomenon is so important. And that's something that, that I focused on a lot. It's you know, the title of my book is, is Blockchain and, and Trust. And I think the the critical thing is is what you said that that trust is a cost in transactions, but of course it's also a benefit. If you have trust, then you can do all sorts of interactions that are that are either not going to happen or going to happen with all sorts of other costs, other sorts of uh, things that have to be put into place in the absence of trust. Um, so I mean, I've I've been you know, focused a lot on the, the fact that um, these are these blockchain based systems are they're not really trustless as people like to say they they reinvent trust in a different way what what's your your view about that yeah i think that's a great i really don't like the term trustless in fact i would never want to live in any place that doesn't have trust i mean trust is the essence of, of civilization in our first book the age of, current, of crypto currency you know we talked about you know the failure of trust in uh, in argentina where i'd lived for six years and 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 sort of how it's at the core of its monetary dysfunction uh, so trust is this kind of, um, you know, this asset, this social asset that needs to be developed. I thoroughly agree with you. But what I think is a right way to think about this is therefore to think of the record-keeping function generally as a trust-generating concept, right, even if it's centralized or decentralized. Uh, once we agree on numbers, we have a system of trust upon which to enter into exchanges of that, 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 that build upon that trust. What we're doing is trying to find a more uh, effective uh, collective way of managing that layer, the record-keeping layer, so that you know all the other uh, exercises can be can be done on top of that. I'm also you know of the view, and one of the things that often comes back when people say, "Well, hang on a second, you know, this is just this is just recording the sequence of transactions." Um, you still have to trust whoever's inputting data into the system. I think that's absolutely true as well. The notion, for example, that Bitcoin is completely trustless forgets the fact that we, you know, we have to trust the devices that are putting the, the, uh, you know, the data yeah. in there. That that you know, the entire Bitcoin ecosystem is built upon countless structures of trust, whether it's the, you know, the the uh, centralized exchanges that manage the money or 
uh, or just simply, you know, the transactions themselves between two entities who agree on or don't agree on with the, with the exchanges. There's always trust there. So uh, I, I just don't see the fact that we have to still have trust embedded into uh, a blockchain as somehow diminishing the fact that the one, this one layer within it, that is the sequencing of the transactions once they've gone in, is somehow, you know, is somehow diminished. It, it, it's about trying to, we still have to figure out how best to assure ourselves of those trusts, right. you know, whether it's devices or, you know, work processes or, you know, accounting functions, whatever it is that's designed there to, you know, assure that we're comfortable with the, with the information that's going in, that all needs to be in place. Right. But, so, um, so that let me yeah. let me interrupt you. So that gets to the the next thing I was going to ask is is what's needed from here. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've described this foundational change in in the structure of trust and and record keeping. Is we talked about early on, uh, you know, some of the technology is the these decentralized permissionless systems still not very mature. But you know, is that what what's next, um, or is it more? Uh, resolving regulation or, or comfort level among businesses. What, what do you think it will take? Not not necessarily, I'm not asking you like what it'll take to get the prices back up, but but more broadly in terms of the next step in maturation of this phenomenon. But yeah, and it is an interesting way to frame that question because it is uh, precisely around how do you get individuals and businesses to trust the yes. kind of superstructure of everything, right? So certain, certainly things like regulation, which again can be an anathema to a more radical kind of uh, a libertarian or you know anarchic view of what Bitcoin should be. But it, but it is, I think, you know, that, that, that smart regulation or self-regulation uh, as well, you know, s- sort of systems that, that develop standards and expectations of care, uh, ratings agencies, you know, whatever they are, that give people a sense that the actors in this space can be trusted um, and, and, and won't be out there to abuse you, it will be very, very important for, for adoption. Um, and then I think there's a lot of work that can be done uh, around the edges looking at the devices. Like there's, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, the interplay between trusted computing modules and things like that uh, you know, through you know, Internet of Things uh, networks and the like, uh, figuring out how all of those devices can interact in a tr- in a in a way that we can trust and and submit data to a, a common record like a blockchain uh, is is one of the things that will then enable us to to roll out these kinds of systems across the emerging sort of fourth industrial revolution of. Uh, of devices that, that we expect to see. So all of them really deal with trying to resolve that, that trust problem, whether it's the device, the individuals, the, 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 um, you know, the regulatory framework. There's a lot of work has to be done on standards. You know, consortia need to be developed around what kinds of um, you know, APIs can be shared to put, put data into these systems. There's just there's a lot that needs to happen at the superstructure level uh, to, to, to give everybody a sense of confidence in, in how it's all working. And we've got to wrap up in, in just a minute to take a, a break, but uh, the last thing is, given that, uh, how optimistic are you that um, the crash in the prices and the skepticism and, and all of the uh, regulatory enforcement actions we've, we've already started to see responding to a lot of the fraud and abuse that was happening aren't going to uh, scare too many people away, either at the customer side or at the developer side, to really take that next step? 
Well, one thing is clear that, you know, uh, human investors uh, have pretty short memories. <laughs> so um, uh, it'll take a while for people to want to sort of climb back into this space. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that the price was an absolute distraction. I think it was actually, you know, the, the kind of image that it presented of this, this sort of speculative, greedy culture really wasn't very helpful. So I, I think this is actually a good opportunity to see people build and develop the technology. And we are seeing that. I have a column coming out in Coindesk maybe today or a little maybe it's tomorrow, but just looking at a lot of the really interesting scaling initiatives that are happening, not only in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but a lot of these other new blockchain models that are serious. They're working heavily on you know, new permissionless systems. There's there's sharding. There is, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, proof of stake models. There are, uh, you know, layer layer yep. two uh, channels and things like that, which are going to make these systems much more scalable and viable. This is the sort of thing that could be our worldwide web moment. And I think, you know, we just need the sort of time and space and tranquility, perhaps, that the uh, the more subdued market environment gives us to allow this to happen. So, yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty optimistic that, that this sort of massive developer community that's, that's still very interested and passionate in this will, will come through and deliver something pretty viable for the world to, to use in a constructive way. Michael Casey, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Next guest I'm delighted to welcome is Jalak Jobonputra, founding partner at Future Perfect Ventures, uh, a fund that invests uh, early stage in cutting-edge technology. Uh, she's been uh, well-known as one of the leading investors uh, in fintech and blockchain for a number of years, uh, and also founded Collective Future, an organization to foster diversity and inclusion in the blockchain sector. And she's a graduate of Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania. So, Jock, delighted to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. So we're reflecting on uh, what happened over the, the last year or so doing, during the, the bubble and what's happening now. One of the big developments last year was that um, startups started funding themselves with uh, issuing cryptocurrency tokens, what are called initial coin offerings or, or ICOs for people who aren't familiar with this. And there was a lot of talk that this model would replace venture capital, that firms could use this, this tokenized fundraising model as a better way to, uh, to generate capital and to do other things. And now many of those uh, tokens are, are down 90 95%. There are all sorts of regulatory questions. As a venture capitalist who's doing traditional equity-type investments in companies, um, you know, obviously uh, you didn't buy that story, I would assume, but how does the investment market for early stage blockchain and crypto startups look to you today? Yes, it's been quite a year. And I think I was on record in the beginning of the whole ICO craze in in, uh, April or May of 2017, saying I was very excited by the concept of tokenization, of um, fractionalization of assets, of of more equal uh, access to uh, services and assets that I thought tokenization could provide. But what happened uh, was that the market was overrun by a lot of scammers, a lot of, if not scammers, entrepreneurs who shouldn't be running public companies before they had even decided exactly what they were going to build out. And, and so what I saw happening was a conflation of venture capital and IPOs, uh, And we all know that companies have been trying to stay private longer instead of doing IPOs. So it was interesting to me that there was this rush to 
kind of go public of issuing you know, tokens uh, to investors around the world when entrepreneurs hadn't yet decided what they were going to do with all the capital that came in. Um, and there's a reason venture capital has existed as an asset class uh, for so many years. Uh, it's more patient capital. Uh, the VC funds are usually 10-year life cycle funds where you give portfolio companies time to really build out to find product market fit and then eventually have an exit. And that was process that too many people were trying to circumvent or, or short circuit. And, and what last year and, and this year has taught us is that company building still takes time and you don't want to have to answer to kind of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of investors around the world who've given you money um, without actually, you know, knowing or, or having help from them or being able to build out a product um, and, and put it out there. So um, while I'm excited about tokenization and the fact that, look, venture capitalists can't invest in every opportunity we see. And I think there's a lot of talented entrepreneurs out there that should be able to raise capital. I think this whole idea that there was free money and there was no accountability is what got us into the place we are right now. Mm -hmm. Are you still seeing good uh, early stage opportunities in this area? I'm seeing great opportunities in this area. And, and you're right that we mainly stuck to equity. Um, I was an early investor in the internet, uh, uh, started my venture career in 99 out in Silicon Valley. So I saw that whole bubble and, um, and that bubble bursting out in the Valley. And, um, that's really why I stayed away from ICOs last year because I've seen the movie before. I've seen what speculation and greed leads to. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in the technology or the asset class. And, and so uh, what I'm seeing right now is entrepreneurs get back to building. I started investing in the blockchain space in 2013 and 2014. So it reminds me very much of that 2014-15 time mm -hmm. period when Mt. Gox had happened, um, Ethereum uh, was about to ICO, and there was a lot of excitement about new models emerging in the sector. And we're returning to that. And that's when the real building, company building, is, is happening and going to happen. So I'm very bullish about the next year in terms of technology build out uh, and, and experimentation of uh, scaling models and, and um, custody and infrastructure, middleware. Uh, yeah, that was that was what I was going to ask you. Sort of, what are take a longer time yeah. to get to is consumer adoption, similar to what we saw with the internet. Right, that was what I was going to ask you next. Is is what what are specific areas that you're excited about in terms of new companies building in this area? Yeah, it's, it's a decidedly unsexy area. <laughs> <laughs> I get excited about middleware um, because we have these protocols that are emerging, and I, I don't think we know yet which of the protocols are actually going to have legs in the future. Um, there are a, a bunch of new ones that are going to come to mainnet next year. So I think 2019 is going to be exciting to see what happens at the protocol layer. Um, but before we can get to consumer adoption or even enterprise adoption, 
uh, we need to have tools that can connect developers uh, and make it easier to build on some of these protocols. And, and that's the missing layer uh, where I'm starting to see you know, a lot of interesting development on um, with entrepreneurs who've had experience uh, around you know, security, APIs, and, and um, uh, scalability, and as well as vertical solutions and financial services. Um, I mean, we just saw, and this is in the non-blockchain sector, but a company called Plaid that's been doing APIs to connect customer information mm-hmm. uh, across banks. Um, they just raised um, $250 million last week. And, and so I think we can't forget about that connectivity layer that needs to exist if we want to see this um, uh, technology really take hold because we'll have multiple blockchains with multiple use cases and how do they interoperate and, and work together and share information in, in a secure way. Um, and that's, uh, th- those are areas I, I'm very interested in investing in. This is your host, Kevin Werbeck on After the Blockchain Bubble. I'm speaking now with Jalak Putra of Future Perfect Ventures, uh, one of the leading investors in the blockchain and crypto space. Um, so it's interesting what, what you just said, uh, Jalak, about uh, the, the, the middleware and the sort of unsexy pieces. There, there was, I think, a couple of weeks ago, some back and forth about infrastructure and applications um, among some of the commentators in this space. And, uh, you know, the one view is, well, you've you got to build the foundations before you can build the higher level floors, which I think is, is somewhat of what you were saying before, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the other hand, it's partly the consumer-facing or end-user-facing applications that generate the excitement and the activity, and, and partly that you can't always know what you're building for until you have a sense about what, what applications actually have traction. So I mean, how do you see things going forward now over the next few years? Do you, do you think that there needs to be a period of, of you know, creating these foundations and having them be robust before we're ever going to see any uh, you know, real killer apps in terms of the use cases? I don't think it's uh, necessarily a linear progression. What I've been saying for a while, actually, is I believe that it's a lot more circular than say the internet was, um, partly because a lot of this technology is, is open source. And so you can have people around the world developing on it at the same time, and there are going to be different use cases in, say, Africa than there are you know, in the United States. And already I've had some of my portfolio companies find really attractive use cases for the technology, including BitPesa, uh, which is using the Bitcoin blockchain uh, for more efficient uh, B2B transfers uh, in and out of Africa with uh, banks around the world. And so we're actually seeing some applications that have emerged. Now, um, we need to see scalability, though. Um, We can't have Right now, a lot of those use cases don't require, you know, a large number of transactions per second. Um, but to get to some of the kind of more robust or interesting use cases, we will need some of that scalability. We'll need more security. We'll need better user interfaces. Um, so I think like the sector has captured the imagination of a lot of people, a lot of technologists. Uh, uh, and and so what's more exciting to me than 
the internet about blockchain is the fact that it is so distributed, so open source. And the fact that the internet exists so that people can communicate with each other to see what the ultimate best use cases are going to be. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier, which is this move to tokenization, to creating fractional interest in things with cryptocurrency tokens. That that has now all come back around where people are focusing on doing it as a, a regulated security token. Uh, and there's there seems to be a lot of interest in that model for things like real estate. Uh, where do you see that going? Yeah, I'm actually an investor in, in Harbor, uh, which recently announced a um, – an issuance around a real estate property, you know, tokenizing the real estate property in um, university housing in South Carolina. And what's been interesting is the amount of interest in that offering. So I do believe that you know, we, we sit here in the U.S. and we have access to investing in the stock market and in real estate and, and all these different asset classes and having been born in, in Nairobi and having spent a lot of time in the emerging markets, a lot of people can only put their cash under their mattress still. <laughs> and, and so the opportunity for people to actually not only save but make investments that can create greater returns I think is good for all of us around the world, good for global GDP, because if you think about the amount people around the world who don't have access to that right now and how they can't make their money compound, um, it's staggering. And, and then it, with Harbor's offering, this is in the United States, and yet there was a lot of interest for people who wouldn't have heard about or had access to investing in this particular type of property before. And, and that shows that even in a place you know, where we do have a lot of access to assets, that fractionalization, bringing more efficiencies and kind of the, the entry uh, barriers lower is also very attractive and, and uh, in demand uh, in the developed world. And last thing, unfortunately, we have to move on. As I noted, you, you've been one of the leaders in uh, addressing the, the problem of, of lack of diversity um, and gender and ethnicity and other dimensions in the blockchain world. Um, I, you know, I would have had no trouble at all filling this entire program with amazing women. I had to take a few men on the agenda just uh, for, for equality purposes. But um, do you see that uh, imbalance getting better? And, and does the downturn help or hurt? Oh, gosh, that's the last point. It's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. Um, look, there are amazing uh, people around the world of um, all genders and ethnicities uh, who are working in the sector, uh, whose imaginations have been captured by this sector. Um, I think what happened last year was just uh, a lot of speculation, uh, a lot of finance. Uh, so when I started off on Wall Street, you know, I went to work in undergrad, so I've been in that environment mm -hmm. um, pretty much my whole career. Um, but it was very off-putting to, to people who actually wanted to build and, and believe in the technology for something longer term. And so, uh, I mean, we have so few women in, in finance in general, and so I'm hoping that, you know, the downturn uh, when people are getting back to building um, and the tourists are gone will will um, allow more people to, to enter the sector who may not have just been interested in the short term.
And I have to commend you, too, Kevin, for the 10 blockchain conference. Uh, that lineup is the most diverse I've seen at a conference. Um, and so kudos to you for for showcasing so many different voices. Oh, well, thank, thanks to the students who did most of the organizing for that. And we're going to do it again this year and try and do even better. So uh, I wish we could talk more, but we've got to move on. Um, Jalak Putra, delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to move on to our next guest, who is Amber Balde, co-founder and CEO of Clover. Uh, she's been on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, uh, Coindesk's Most Influential in Blockchain. She, uh, before uh, starting Clover, uh, was the blockchain lead at J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, I'm delighted to have her on the show. So, Amber, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, you uh, went from uh, J.P. Morgan, one of the, the biggest um, enterprise financial services players in this uh, blockchain and crypto world and in the finance world in general, uh, earlier this year to uh, launching a startup. And uh, I'm curious why and, and what is it exactly that you're doing at Clover and uh, you know, why is that important where the market is evolving today? Well, that's, that's a big question. That's too many questions <laughs> at once. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no problem. I can start at, start at the beginning, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in that position speaking with uh, very large enterprises around the world, um, both banks, but also corporates, um, asset managers, just up and down the spectrum of people that are trying to use uh, blockchain technology or distributed ledgers or even um, public cryptocurrency projects to do useful things for business. And it was just readily apparent that the types of applications that they wanted to build and also that were kind of being sold to them as being buildable um, are not really able to be built yet. Uh, there's a, a real lack of both maturity at the underlying protocol level, which I think gets a lot of attention in the public space, but also the kind of middleware and connectivity layer um, that businesses would need to build these sorts of things at scale. So what we're doing at Clover is building developer tooling uh, that allows you to create some of these applications, whether you plan on deploying that to uh, an enterprise sort of environment or to an actual public blockchain, uh, with the intention that the way that we see these things is that they will, over time, become a lot more connected and the lines are going to blur between them. I hope that um, larger businesses start experimenting more with connectivity out to public chains. I hope that some of the smaller startups launching out in the public space uh, become big enough that they need things that really scale and, and work um, writ large. And uh, the, the simple tools to get there right now certainly don't exist. Just to uh, let anyone know, if you're just tuning in, that uh, this is Kevin Werbach, your host, and you're listening to After the Blockchain Bubble, our special programming on SiriusXM Business Radio. I'm speaking right now with uh, Amber Obalde, the co-founder of Clover. And uh, if you have a question or comment for us, uh, you can call in anytime, 1-844-942-7866. So, Amber, you make an interesting point about um, the the need for the the middleware and the infrastructure, even in the the permissioned or uh, enterprise blockchain space. I, I was talking at the first segment with Michael Casey, who was you know, emphasizing the scalability issues on the public blockchain side, which I think people are are, are more familiar with. That you know, they're huge scalability issues, but. Uh, what is it that's that's needed uh, really for maturation on the enterprise side? What does it exactly that mean, the, the developer tooling and so forth that's needed? 
Yeah, I just saw an article this past week that apparently blockchain developer is the largest growing profession yeah. on LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, surprising considering I'm not sure what tooling they're using. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not just the underlying protocol maturity. Like I said, you know, if you want to connect these things to, your, to existing internal systems rather than starting with a completely greenfield application, if you're trying to incorporate some pieces of uh, either a blockchain or distributed system in general, um, you need to be able to integrate that into your existing systems, whether that's your ERP or your existing other kind of payment systems, you know, businesses aren't necessarily trying to pay everyone in crypto assets, um, or integration into disaster recovery systems, or uh, your deployability, your DevOps cycle, um, and really all of that kind of works together as an entire software development lifecycle. Most of the pilots that are being created right now are very kind of hard-coded with the intention that some of these pieces are going to be ripped out and replaced with this strategic solution, but it's kind of an unsexy problem to work on figuring out what those the long-term solution to some of these integrations whether it's a data oracle uh, or anything else are really going to look like and you know the the world that you're talking about is, is not the uh, go-go uh, cryptocurrency trading world by any stretch of the imagination but does the the downturn uh, in the crypto assets have any impact uh, on the the companies you're talking to or at least the the mindset of executives I think all of these things are related and it's kind of a conflated problem. They're certainly not mutually exclusive problems, but they're not really the same problem either. Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the, the focus or the hype in, on the enterprise side was partially driven by the, the exuberance out in the public crypto asset markets. And especially in the financial sector, it drove a lot of interest in figuring out how you're going to build products around that sector. And that has certainly uh, cooled off as the client interest has kind of cooled off. There aren't as many hedge funds calling and saying, when are you going to be able to you know, service my assets here? Uh, and so in that sense, I think it's actually good for the financial sector to be able to take their time and look at how they're really building those products, um, especially when you're trying to build, you know, setting aside distributed ledger tech. Um, but when you're looking at building uh, applications that will work with uh, digital bearer assets, it's really a whole different ball of wax. It's, is it easier to turn um, a custodian into an information security company or an information security company into a custodian? You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's a, a difficult uh, problem. So in that sense, I think it's good to get a little more time on that side. Uh, on the other hand, I think that a lot of the exuberance in the whole distributed ledger sector was driven by consulting white papers and people <laughs> that don't really necessarily understand um, what you should actually be using this technology for. So I think it's great that uh, that's slowing down. It gives us an opportunity to focus on building a tool set that will make the next crop of pilots more useful. Uh, and really, anybody working in that emerging tech or innovation space in business should know, or at least put on a PowerPoint slide at some point, that nine of 10 of these things was going to fail. Um, and we knew that. That's part of what you know going into innovation projects. Um, but nobody wants it to be their project or their department. Um, so there's there's been a lot of hangers on of projects, but really it would be great to see them go away so you could try again. And in terms of you know, large enterprises, you know, financial services especially, uh, obviously you can't generalize across the board, but how far along do you find the major companies are in terms of either their commitment that 
this technology is really something that that we believe deserves serious investment and uh, the the maturity of understanding just where the opportunities are. It's evolving, and I I think the educational process is a long one. Um, It's a lot easier to sell very grandiose sort of solutions that you think are going to transform an entire industry um, than it is to sell a very small, useful tool that might solve a small problem that you have in the interim, given that onboarding one small new tool, especially if it uses a new cryptographic suite that your business isn't acquainted with and uh, comes from an open source uh, community that you might not really know how to engage with, uh, it can be hard to get over those kind of hurdles. But that's really where I think those smaller wins are better longer term. And, And businesses are starting to realize that you can tease apart this kind of hype monster that's been called blockchain into its component parts of Um, both distributed systems uh, computing, but also uh, whether we're talking about publishing attestations about something to an an immutable store, or we're talking about just coordinating data across trust boundaries, uh, even internally across trust boundaries before you even get to multiplayer scenarios. There's a lot of work that can be done there that will help your organization understand the tech and then be ready to do some of the these more visionary uh, industry-changing projects. But but does one lead to the other? Uh, I would assume it's easy just to say, okay, we've got this particular point problem. Which, if, if we're a large enterprise, is you know there, there's a lot of pain. There's there's you know, significant finan- dollars attached to it. Um, can you get from solving that that small problem to saying, okay, now I, I want to actually go on a path to migrating some of my real core systems? I think there is a path. And more than that, there's increasing um, scrutiny of how data is managed within large-scale enterprises, Um, whether we're talking about GDPR kind of risks or we're talking about uh, data breach risks. People are starting to look at, at how their data is managed and the increasing risk of creating these monolithic data lakes. Uh, And so there will be more attention that can be paid to how you can break up some of that and keep data closer to its point of origin, um, keep the uh, authentication and access around it more strict, but still be able to drive some of the similar kind of business insights that you could get if it was it was in the same place. Um, people will start paying more attention to that. Uh, and again, you can do that within an organization or across a consortium of organizations that might not be, you know, the top three businesses in an industry getting together and deciding to do an infrastructure lift of a $20 million project um, from, from day one. So, I, you know, 1% of businesses have really looked at how this, this technology can change their bottom line. And that's mostly because accessing it is a very high cost endeavor right now. You need those consultants. Um, you need people to come in and help you, uh, help you do it. And uh, what they give you, you probably can't even maintain yourself if you don't have that existing developer and business expertise. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we're working on at Clover, hopefully, is really dropping the barrier to entry um, to be able to experiment and understand how you might uh, collaborate uh, across an industry at, you know, um, with smaller businesses and global businesses, kind of similar to how, you know, if you imagine the, the web in the early 90s, um, before we had reusable shopping carts and kind of all of these reusable components that yep. let mom and pop shops get on the Internet and launch their first dot com, everything you found was just Fortune 500 websites right? Um, or hobby projects. So it's that really bringing those two sides together 
um, that's, that can spark a much wider uh, set of adoption. And you, you've answered this to some extent, but it, today, what is it that gets executives at these firms interested and uh, willing to invest in a, you know, a blockchain or, or um, DLT type of solution? Initially, it was driving down operational costs um, more than creating top-line revenue opportunities. But I think the projects that stick around longer tend to figure out how they're going to drive real top-line business revenue. Uh, you can always find a way to kind of throw more people at a problem, or it's, it's easier to, to hide costs, I guess. Um, so the, the projects that get funded longer term tend to be doing something that's, that's really new. And that's what's more exciting, I think, to people. Mm-hmm. And then you, you also alluded to this before, but you know, one of the, the things that you fairly uniquely did at, at J.P. Morgan was straddling between the, the enterprise world and the kind of uh, crypto anarchist public blockchain world uh, with some of the, the um, projects like Quorum, which was doing a, a permission version of, of Ethereum. Do you see movement for those worlds to come together? And and if so, how is that happening today? Absolutely. I mean, the the fundamental problems that we were looking at with uh, the Quorum project, which was not just about um, creating a permission version of vanilla Ethereum, that's relatively easy to do out of the box, but was to, to solve the challenges of privacy within those networks. And uh, it's not just privacy as people sometimes think of it. Uh, if, you're, if you're more familiar with a system like Bitcoin, it's really about protecting um, the identity of who owns coins or perhaps provenance of payments. But when you look at something like an Ethereum system where you have smart contracts and business logic, you can't get uh, companies together and then have them disclose their business secret sauce to each other. And necessarily, that's how the Ethereum virtual machine works right now. So. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for businesses to seize on this new privacy research um, to to solve real business problems, um, especially, again, as I mentioned, the things around data privacy becoming important. Um, but also uh, longer term, I think that uh, I hope all coins that are launched in the future are privacy coins, right? There's a, there's a real risk that if we don't put more emphasis into creating privacy-preserving systems, instead what we're creating are essentially virtual data lakes, right? And that's even worse off for, or will make many people worse off if, you know, there's a lot of lip service given to take back your data, but most of the enterprise pilots don't have anything to do with that. And so if you're sharing data across boundaries, across jurisdictions, it ends up in places that you weren't expecting, people that you weren't expecting have access to it. Um, and it's, it is not really about protecting consumers so much as it can actually become a greater point of surveillance. And we're just about out of time, but uh, doesn't, though, a privacy-protecting system also lead to abuse and and lead to regulatory problems? Not necessarily, uh, especially with a lot of the the new research um, that's happening into ways to handle uh, selective disclosure on an opt-in basis as opposed to doing things like backdooring systems. You know, this is there's a constant tension or an ongoing tension, of course, um, that we run up to against when it comes to strong cryptography and truly privacy-preserving systems. But um, it's if, if you want to create a system that won't kind of bite you later, you need to really design truly privacy-preserving systems where people have consented to what they are disclosing to you. And that same thing applies to business. Businesses don't want to accidentally or find out later that things have been disclosed that they weren't expecting. You know, uh, a, yeah. a key that you maybe give to your government is fine, but when another government kind of 
manages to get it, um, we wouldn't want our entire national economy to be uh, on Twitter, for example. So it's important that these systems be uh, be truly privacy-preserving, not just in name only. Okay. We unfortunately have to wrap up as we have to take a break. Sorry, I can't go on more. We've got a lot of guests. Amber Balde from Clover, thank you so much for being on the, on the show. Sure. Great to talk to you. We are going to take a break, uh, and then I will come back with uh, Tim Swanson, the founder of Post Oak Labs. This is Kevin Werbeck after the blockchain bubble. We'll be right back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 